I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Daria Dawson, the political director of America Votes, an organization dedicated to empowering more Americans to vote through voter education, engagement, and mobilization. Daria and I discuss how the organization has evolved over the 20 years since it was founded in 2003, and how it's positioned itself as a coordination hub for the progressive organizing community to turn out voters in election after election. We also talk about their plans to mobilize an even greater number of voters for the 2024 election cycle. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Daria Dawson. Daria Dawson, welcome. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I so appreciate being here with you today. I know that America Votes has been this longtime hub for progressive organizations and ideas, but there seems to have been a shift of progressive legislative ideas during the Trump era. Right. There seems to have been an acceleration of those ideas into mainstream, especially the mainstream legislative process. Right. And just one example off the top of my head is student loan forgiveness. I know we were talking about it during the 2016 cycle. It was a part of the political discourse. But even then, it felt like it was kind of far away, you know, but here we are. And again, like I said, that that acceleration seemed to happen during the Trump era. What do you think it was about the Trump era that kind of accelerated all of those ideas? Sure, I definitely will be happy to answer that, but I would love to just take a step back because you mentioned America Votes, and I feel like or America Votes is an organization that not a lot of people know about. So yes, America Votes is the coordination hub for the progressive community as it relates to what you mentioned about progressive policies, where you have organizations who come to the America Votes table that are interested in turning out the electorate to elect the right progressive leaders that can lead to progressive policies being implemented federally and in states, locally, et cetera. So what we saw after the 2016 election was essentially, I think, a wake-up call to a lot of voters across the country of how do we make change in these four years that we're going to have this person as president of the United States? And what you saw was a dramatic shift to think more about down-ballot races and, and engage in the electorate to turn out for down-ballot races. Because for a really long time, and we could go back to like 2008, 2012, where Democrats, progressives had the White House, But there was something happening still with gubernatorials and state legislatures where we're getting our butts kicked by the other side. They were thinking more about the long-term game and redistricting and all of those pieces that needed to move the needle to where we are now, right? So what you saw in 2016 was a resurgence, I would say, of the progressive movement. And I think... One of the positive signs about 2016 was this activism that happened with a lot of new groups coming into fruition. And a lot of those groups decided that our mission is to focus on those down ballot races, focus on state legislature, focus on local elections, focus on the gubernatorial, where we can chip away, chip away at things that we know we're not going to be able to have too much of an impact on the federal level. And that is what led to what you're seeing now about progressive policies. The truth of the matter is progressivism is all about just moving forward, right? So how does this country move forward? And America Votes position itself to really be the center of engaging those constituencies, those voters 
in the electoral process as one check, one piece of the puzzle in their toolbox, because democracy is a process. It is elections, yes, but it's also voter education. It is also voter registration. And it is also, even once an election happens, that accountability for those elected officials. What you saw in 2016 is how can we create other accountability methods for this federal government? Particularly, if you think back to 2016, 2017, speaking of accountability, you saw a lot of people focusing on the state attorney general's races, right? And how the attorney generals were getting themselves into place to like sue the federal government on things like the Muslim ban. You know, those are things that happened because of focusing on other levels of the ballot to have that check on the, the federal administration. So to answer your question, I think the 2016 was kind of an opportunity to get engaged. It definitely woke people up to think more long-term about democracy and its process. Right. You said something a couple of times. It kind of woke people up, right? And I was talking about this to somebody the other day that the conservative side, they were already kind of awakened <laughs> to, to take advantage of those holes in our processes. I think one thing that may have happened, especially with those down-ballot races, it drove us to dig deeper into how they got there, right? And one of the things that we discovered is that they were focusing on these down-ballot races all along. And we woke up to that rather late. And I think that realizing that and then pushing people in those positions into those legislative positions in some ways it kind of pushed the policy forward as we got more progressive people more left-leaning people into those down ballot races they then pushed the policy through so that it became more mainstream no i think you're absolutely right and i feel like it was probably the reverse effect right, right. of having president barack obama in office and that side thinking more so long-term lower ballots. But I would say the difference between a 20, 2008 versus a 2016 mm -hmm. was 2010, right? And the redistricting and the census and how the maps were drawn to basically create what we have now, which is a very gerrymandered type representation in the state legislatures and even in Congress, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're now like at a four or five seat majority in Congress. And the maps are so gerrymandered that I think for the next 10 or so years, we might see like those shifts by four mm -hmm. or five races and that the margins are going to be so tight in those gerrymandered seats that things like, and I'm about to take you to another thing you and I have discussed of election administration coming into play for how voting happens and voter suppression happens to chip away at those margins so that, you know, people either stay home and get frustrated or people challenge the votes of those key constituencies that are going to be able to flip those very, very narrow races. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious as to what you think or why you think rather some ideas, some progressive ideas caught on and others didn't, right? For instance, you know, I think that we could argue that we saw an expansion of the social safety net in the past four years. You know, the child tax credit, which I know that's been rolled back or expired, but that was a good thing. Like if it had lasted, that would have been a good thing. And we mm -hmm. could argue that that's very progressive, right? The American Rescue Plan, there was a boost in food assistance and again, very progressive, right? But other things didn't happen like police reform, right? That did not happen. So why do you think ideas like that have not caught on more broadly? And we're not really talking about them seriously. I appreciate that question, Jennifer. And I think one thing we have to think about 
when we mention this transition between like 2020 and 2022 and where we are now is that a once in a lifetime pandemic took place and it forced this country to really think through its social policies, um, particularly when it came to things such as paid sick leave and, um, child care and taking care of your children because schools aren't open and how do I go to work if my child is home it kind of push the envelope probably sooner rather than later to reckon with the lack of care policies in this country so I'm not sure we could sit into the what if type situation and yes, we know like in 2020, we were dealing with the pandemic and we all saw the video of George Floyd and that was a reckoning, right, for us to deal with, you know, the systemic issues of this country and how it affects how we write those policies and live and breathe those policies. But I do think that people address, and when I say people, I will also say elected officials they address the issue that's right in front of them. And I think there was an urgency of the care issues that we're still seeing to this day, right? Particularly when it comes to like service employees and service workers and home care workers, healthcare workers, that that pandemic kind of forced us progressives to like really think through what those policies look like. Well, since 2020, or really since 2018, turnout has increased among a lot of traditionally marginalized groups, right? Um, we could attribute that to the person that was in the White House at the time. But I think the pickup really did begin after the 2018 elections, the 2018 midterm elections, right? What do you think that means for the turnout for 2024? Do you still think we can rely on that uptick? Back to your point about what we saw in 20, post-2016, uh, or, you know, let's take it a step back to what you said, 2013, you know, Shelby Beholder stripping away the pre-clearance formula of Section 4 of the voting rights. I honestly think in that moment exemplified the Supreme Court's privilege or, or the idea that some of these protections, these equal protections did no longer apply because we're now in a more modern place of, of, of voting rights. And what happened, right? After 45 was elected president, there was an opportunity to engage constituencies that consisted of people of color and young voters. And after that election in 2018, um, you saw between 2018 and 2020, you saw a surge of about what we call the blue surge of 46 million people who voted, who did not vote in the 2016 election. Either they were registered and they did not vote or they were newly registered and came to that electorate. That blue surge of voters, 46 million people, more than half of those voters were young, between 18 and 34. Uh, half of them were people of color, and more than 50% of the blue surge were women, right? So you had this urgency, like we talked about earlier, of this, you know, president being in office, and what do we do? How do we get more engaged in a process that is up and down the ticket? I do think that this all happened despite of Shelby Beholder, because there's also a piece of uh, mobilization and turnout that is called education. And it is educating those voters, those key constituencies, those core constituencies that have more at stake, right, that aren't as privileged as those that are on the Supreme Court who make these decisions of knowing that if they're coming for my rights, 
the rights of Black Americans when it comes to voting rights, the rights of the LGBTQI community, the rights of women, right? Then who's next? So there was, again, this, again, urgency. I hate using that term, but I think it was an urgency of education, of learning the process and knowing that it takes all of the faucets, not just voting, not just protesting. Yes, those are important, but there is also the education. There's also the accountability pieces of the process. I'm curious, can you talk about some of your partners? I'm curious as to who some of your partners are, because that's a lot of people to get to. <laughs> I could give you a little bit of a history. America Votes um, was founded in 2003. Ironically, we are celebrating our 20-year anniversary right now. And the purpose of America Votes was to have a center coordination hub for groups in the progressive community to engage, work together, and actually coordinate to what it was that they were engaging with. Like once upon a time, you could have all of these groups just talking to all the same people. And it was really an opportunity to think through of how do we not reduplicate efforts and how do we also not du reduplicate resources, right? So in the 20 years, you know, our founders were the groups like Emily's List and Planned Parenthood and the labor unions, AFL-CIO, SEIU, who are still partners at our table to this day. But we've also grown to include, oh, and NAACP, I should mention, was also a founding partner. But we've also grown to include organizations like LCV, the Conservation Group, the League of Conservation Voters, Black Pack, and SOMOS, and newer groups on horizon like Indivisible and House Majority Pack, Senate Majority Pack, DLCC. Like, I could go Everybody. on and on. Black Voters <laughs> Matter. Like, yeah. I could go on yeah. and on and on yeah. about Poto uh, Latinx, like groups who are at our table. But the thing that it makes America Vote so unique, and I'm just naming just a handful of organizations at the, at the coalition, we have about 400 partners across the country in our state network working on the ground. What makes us so unique is that we're able to build a infrastructure that stays in key states year in and year out, whether or not it's an election year, whether or not it's a legislative session, but just that permanent infrastructure in those states that will allow for partners to still do what they need to do, like lobbying and power building, and in some cases, like protesting. But we are that center hub that really keeps the focus on how do we plan for the next election? What are those pieces that we need? Who are those constituencies that we need to engage? That is what America Votes does in states and nationally with many organizations um, in the progressive movement, in addition to the ones that I named. So, you know, we know that the Dobbs decision and, you know, which effectively overturned Roe v. Wade played a, a big role in the turnout during the 2022 midterm cycle, right? You know, I'm curious as to what is the messaging going into 2024 to keep that momentum around Dobbs? I actually can't speak to actual policies um, or the plans to implement policies. But what I can say is that we saw how much of an impact the Dobbs decision was on the 2022 election. And moving into 2024, abortion is going to continue to be an issue at the ballot and an issue that drives voters. In 2022, abortion showed that it's a winning issue for Democrats. And as a result, we saw the performance of women in particular in contested races going from like 55% to 57%. Um, and even post-2022, the impact that, that that abortion has on things as, such as the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, 
you know, the turnout being high on a spring off year election um, in which even the young people, I think my, the most amazing thing that I saw during that election was just how engaged the young people were on the college campuses of Wisconsin for again, a state Supreme Court race. So I do think that once you start talking about restricting rights, rights that were given but now being taken away, it's, it's, it resonates and it's going to engage people. So even as we think about 23 and we have the Ohio ballot initiative coming up, we saw, you know, Dobbs playing a role into the Kansas ballot initiative also um, in 2022, like these, you know, single ballot issue. Maybe there was another issue on the ballot, I, I can't recall, but it's a driving issue for voters to speak about women's reproductive rights. I mean, losing those rights, I think, was so jarring to people. Even if they don't know how they're going to be restored, they do know that one party is taking them away. <laughs> and right. once, but, you know, conservatives are becoming more and more brazen in their attacks on democracy. We see it every day, especially with the election process, right? They just mm-hmm. gain an ounce of power and they use that power to exploit any areas of weakness that they find to kind of tear down democracy. You know, and I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that the 2024 election could be our last free election. And I'm just curious as to what America Votes is doing to help protect that democracy. I appreciate you naming that and making what you just said earlier about one party restricting rights. And I do think there is definitely right now we're seeing it. One party is very pro-democracy and one party is not. And I do think that what is happening, and I say this all the time, you know, you win you win a game, they want to change the rules. And we're seeing in real time that when people in this country have a voice and a choice in who they want to have as their representative, whether it's a top of the ticket or even dog catcher, that is the people's choice, right? The majority wins. We had the electoral college, but it's another conversation. But the majority <laughs> wins when it comes to an election, right? Even those states, the majority wins those electoral votes, right? right? So what we're seeing is all of these restrictions being placed to prevent someone who looks like me the opportunity to vote. It is about one side believing that you, as a person of color, you as a young person, you as a woman, you do not deserve to be in this process. And it's anti, that is anti-democracy. Each state has a set of election administration laws that basically determines how an election is processed within that state. And what you're saying right now is states that have Republican legislatures passing laws in both of their chambers to restrict those voting rights. It could be something as simple as taking precincts away off college campuses. We're no longer allowing early voting on Sundays. Black people know what that means, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, you know, changing the hours where, early, yes, we have early voting opportunities, but we're only going to have it from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., which is when people actually are working. Most people are working. So it's these little like changes that are just chipping away at opportunities. And when you're chipping away at opportunities and you're forcing people to stand in line for hours and hours and hours, hoping frustration sets in, that is voter suppression. 
So I am of the place of where you tell someone they can't do anything, they're going to do it. Like, oh, you're telling me that stove is hot, but I'm going to touch it anyway. <laughs> what you're saying is a defiance of people educating themselves. And yes, a lot of the groups that we work with are doing that. Thank you so much, American Books Coalition. Doing that in education, teaching them about, okay, the, the laws have changed in your state. Here's what they mean. You may not be able to vote by mail for any reason anymore. You may need an excuse. You may need someone to sign your ballot before you turn it in. Just using those opportunities to engage with the voter. Education, engagement, education, engagement. It is a long-term process. And we should never, as a movement, think that one election changes anything. It is a process, day in, day day out, off year, on year, odd year, even year, of protecting democracy. Yeah. You know, speaking of states, uh, you know, what state are you most worried about? There's some nefarious stuff happening in Alabama with their congressional maps, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's a mm-hmm. fast moving story. This Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, I think they're trying to impeach a liberal judge, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what their reasoning is for that or you know, she has not gotten the case yet. <laughs> right, exactly. You, so, you know, what reason could you have? Uh, in Ohio, I think you mentioned this, right? There's um, an attempt to raise the threshold for the constitutional amendment. I think that didn't go anywhere. But which that state didn't pass. We, yes. It did not pass. Which one are you most worried about? All Would of them? Would it be concerning if I say all of them? And, and <laughs> I don't, and I, I, I don't mean that in a like sarcastic way, but, you know, we could talk about Alabama and unfortunately Alabama is not in the America Vote State Network, but what you're saying in Alabama right now, whereas the Supreme Court has told them that due to the population of black voters in that state, there should be two congressional districts that represent the minorities in that state. And this state is blatantly kicking the can down the road as long as they possibly can to not do what the Supreme Court, in fact, told them to do, directed them to do, because what is that going to do? That's going to create another majority minority seat that will likely vote Democrat and add a seat to, you know, uh, Leader Jeffries become a speaker next year. So I worry about where we are as a country of being anti-democracy. It could be interpreted a lot of different ways. But at the end of the day, what we're seeing is one party being okay with restricting the rights of citizens to vote in this country, restricting the ways in which a citizen's voice is to be heard in this country, and that is by the ballot box. What is America Vote doing to ensure that outcome? Tell me what your game plan is between now and 2024. So what I mentioned earlier about the blue surge voters, those voters who did not vote in 16, but voted in 1820, and then also in 2022, America Votes, we are taking the approach of re-engaging that blue surge and expanding upon that blue surge. So looking at the states that we need to win those electoral votes, we talked about the Electoral College earlier. Starting with, we do believe Georgia is a path to 270. We do believe North Carolina is a path to 270. And those states that everyone talks about, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona is a path to 270. Nevada is a path to 270. Part two of that is, you know, protecting the United States Senate. 
So looking at states like Ohio and Montana also as a part of that plan. But when it comes to like that blue surge, voters re-engaging that blue surge, expanding upon a blue surge, particularly with young people of color, young people, young people of color and people of color and women in those states that I mentioned. So that's what we're going to be focusing on on 2024 to ensure those voters working with our coalition. The coalition is successful because we trust each other to be the messengers for the key constituencies that we need to turn out. So there is going to be a constituency that cares about climate change. There is a constituency that's going to care about student loans. There is a constituency that's going to care about criminal justice reform. Who are those trusted messengers that can engage with those voters, educate them about the election, about the election administration changes, you know, register them or mobilize them and turn them out. Democracy is not just about voting. It is a ongoing process that includes what's needed before going to the ballot box and after the ballot box. Well, Derry Dawson, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking to me. I appreciate America Votes. Congratulations on 20 years. I'm very optimistic about what you've, what you're going to do moving forward to 2024. So thank you. Jennifer, thank you so much um, for allowing me to represent America Votes and to also just, just talk about what's at stake with you and what we have ahead of us and the work that we, we must do to continue to live in a free democracy. <laughs>